I'd like you to open with me in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3. Now, I'm really bringing a topical message this morning, but it is rooted in Scripture. If it weren't, I wouldn't be bringing it. And uh, part of the foundation for that, I think, lies in these two passages Because in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3, Paul is contrasting the life of a believer who is a follower of Jesus Christ from the ways of the world. And in Ephesians 4, 17, he says, So I say this, and affirm together with the Lord. And and by the way, uh, this is printed in your study guide. If you just want to read it from there, it's the same as in your Bible. Um, I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, Just let me stop there and just make an observation about that because there are a lot of dependent clauses in this very long sentence. And Paul is giving a sequence of cause and effect relationships. He says, this happened because of this, which happened because of this, which happened because of this. And by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you say, Paul, what are you talking about? But what he's saying in essence is, is that unbelievers, uh, Gentiles he refers to them, unbelievers are darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. They don't understand the spiritual walk. And they don't understand it, not because it's mystical and difficult and, and weird and, and kind of other, uh, you know, something that takes uh, the golden glasses of Moroni to figure out. It's not, that's not the problem. The problem is that they are darkened in their understanding because of their ignorance. You say, oh, well, that makes sense. If if you don't understand something, you're ignorant. Okay, I get that part. But why are they ignorant? And that's the crux of the matter, because of the hardness of their heart. In other words, Paul is saying that the unbelieving world is ignorant of spiritual truth, not because it's hard to understand, not because... They're, you know, they're intellectually dull. They're, they're missing it ultimately because their hearts are hard and they've become callous. And as a consequence of that, um, they are wanting to practice every kind of sensuality and greed. But he says in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So Paul is saying as believers, we have a choice to make. And the choice is to lay aside the old nature, the old ways, and to embrace the way of Christ He doesn't specifically say it in this verse, but in the greater context of Ephesians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be different. 
And he says in verse 23 that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, so we have a, a choice. We can be different from the general ways of the world. And he says if we make that choice to lay aside the old life and put on Jesus Christ, we embrace Jesus Christ and follow Him in the power of His Spirit. Therefore, he says, lay aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and do not give the devil an opportunity. Um, those of you that have heard me preach in this passage, you know this is one of my pet peeves. But uh, just in case you haven't heard me, I'm going to give you my pet peeve. This is not saying... It's okay to get upset and angry and mad. Just make up before bedtime. That's not what the passage is saying. The passage is commanding us to become angry. And he says, become angry with respect to sin. And don't ever let the sun go down on your anger towards sin. Don't ever cool down. There is a certain kind of anger that should never go soft. And that is anger towards sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. That's what he's saying. Have an attitude about the pervasiveness of an ungodly uh, world and atmosphere that in your life comes out as an anger towards sin that never cools down. We should never become complacent. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather labor performing with his hands what is good, so that he can have something to share with those who have need. That's an interesting reason to work. I thought I could work so I could get everything I wanted. And Paul says that work so you can have something to share with those who have need. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to hear. I thought we should let it all hang out and say whatever we feel. I thought we should speak our mind. Well, Paul says, no, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but filter it. The only thing you need to say is what is good for the need of the moment that will give grace to those who hear. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Attitudes that should pervade the life of the believer. In Colossians chapter 3, just very quickly, those first 11 verses Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, isn't that true of every Christian? Have you been raised up with Jesus Christ? Are you born again in Him? Have you been resurrected to a living hope in your spirit? You're, you're newly born in Jesus. Keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. And in them you once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech from your mouth. Boy, the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue, doesn't it? Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. You know, if we understood the Scripture rightly, it would be an end to prejudice, an end to racism, an end to injustice, and all other manner of evil that plagues our society. And only in Jesus Christ can that be fully realized. Well, I've been talking the last few weeks about the authority of the Bible. A couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, we talked about the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. And then I began to, to ask the questions, what do we do when the Bible conflicts with science? That was two weeks ago. Today, what do we do when the Bible conflicts with culture? And next week, what do we do when the Bible is in conflict with authority? With powers that have have authority over us. What do we do when following the Bible as the truth of the Word of God and believing that comes into conflict with apparent scientific investigation and discovery, with the drift of culture or the the cultural consensus of our society, and we find ourselves kind of like that salmon that is uh, swimming upstream. Have you ever seen them sometimes in videos? They make the salmon that try to jump up waterfalls, even headed upstream uh, in that uh, spawning season, and, and they're they're going against the current. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm swimming upstream in the world in which we live. I feel like I'm going against the grain, I'm going against the current, and everything is brushing by me. And sometimes I even feel like I've just managed to plant one foot in the sand. And it Have you ever had that experience in a strong current of putting your feet on the bottom and you just feel the sand swirling around your toes? You know, you're losing ground a little bit because everything is going the other direction. You know, and you say, why am I headed the wrong way? Because everything is going the other way. And that's what I mean this morning when I ask the question, what do we do when the Bible, the way it's understood, seems to be in conflict with everything around us? And all the things around us seem so right Because so many people believe them and so many people uh, embrace them as, as an underlying philosophy. How could I be so wrong when everybody else, you know, is going a different direction? How could I be right when the Bible conflicts with culture? Now, I've used some rather um, heady phrases here in my outline And I don't want to frighten you with it because I'm going to define them rather clearly. If you're not used to thinking in philosophical terms, I'll define my terms. But I wanted to use them because they succinctly 
describe, I think, the state of the culture in the United States. And I want to be careful to say that. I'm talking this morning to an audience in McHenry, Illinois, about the Bible in conflict with culture in the United States of America. Other countries have different cultures and they face different problems and they have different kinds of conflict. But in the United States of America, we have a particular kind of conflict with the Scripture. And that's the culture that I want to describe because it's the one in which we live. And I've said that our culture is characterized by narcissistic hedonism and biological and behavioral determinism. Narcissistic hedonism and biological and behavioral determinism. I'm going to define the terms and I think you'll agree with me. Narcissistic hedonism, what is that? First of all, narcissism. Narcissism is uh, the, the, the belief that self is the most important person in the world. That the world should revolve around me. I am the center of my world. I am the one who's important. So narcissism says, look out for number one. You're the person you need to take care of. And if you don't believe that our culture is absorbed by narcissism, just watch the ads on television or the radio. All you have to do is listen to them for a little bit. And what do you hear? You deserve something. You know, a break today or whatever. You have a right. You ought to. You've earned it. How'd you earn it? Well, just by being a person. You've earned the right. This is what you should have. You need to give this to yourself. Listen to how many ads on television and radio appeal to you and your right to enjoy and be happy with whatever they're offering. And it's presented as something that belongs to you. It's like it's part of the Constitution. You know, it's your inalienable right. This is what you deserve. Narcissism is the idea that I am the most important person in my world. When you actually, actually I think we're already pathological in our culture, but when you actually get into narcissistic personality disorder, and you start counseling a person who is, uh, absorbed so much with self that they've become dysfunctional. You hear all kinds of interesting things. I've known uh, a number of narcissists in my career in ministry, and uh, it's very interesting. You begin to hear things like, if it hadn't been for that professor, I would have gotten my degree. If it hadn't been for my mother, I would have done this. If it hadn't been for the boss... This would have happened. In other words, they blame every failure in their life on someone else's treatment of them. Everything that goes wrong is somebody else's fault. You know, I'm in, I'm in financial trouble because the bank keeps doing this to me. I, I'm in credit card trouble because the credit card company keeps doing this to me. And you listen to the excuses, and they're never wrong. Everybody else is messing up. 
everybody else is causing their problems. And as you listen to a person who is truly narcissistic, they also have very little conscience about the pain and the distress of other people. You know, it's like, you know, I can't help how they feel. I'm the one. You know, I've got to take care of myself. And, uh, And you get to, you start paying attention, and they use people for their needs. But they seldom give, genuinely give in return. Whenever a narcissist is giving you something, look out. Because they really have another goal in mind, and they're trying to get something out of you. And you may not know what that is yet, but manipulation is the name of the game. But friends, our culture is absorbed with the self. All you have to do is just watch television. Listen to the radio and and look at the marketing. And you know that we're appealing to your right, what you deserve. This belongs to you. You ought to have it. It's yours. Hedonism is the view that that life is all about pleasure. That the motivation for living life and the goal of life should be enjoyment and pleasure. Give me all the things that will satisfy my wants. Pleasure in the physical realm. Pleasure in the emotional realm. The concept that every pursuit of life should be to to satisfy my appetites and my desires. Now when you put those two together, the, the, the absorption and focus on self and the desire and pursuit of pleasure, I come up with narcissistic hedonism. And tell me that that is not a driving motivator, an underlying belief of our society. It is what compels most people in this country today. And it fuels our politics. It fuels our economics. What do you think this current economic crisis is all about? Why do you think this country is in such trouble in in terms of credit? What do you think our problem is? Oh, the bank gave me too much credit. Well, does that sound like narcissism? Did I just say something like that? It's somebody else's fault? What's the matter with the fact that people spent 15 years ahead of their income and now they can't pay their bills on stuff that they don't even remember buying? They're still paying for it with credit card interest debt. What's going on here? Why do you think we're in the trouble we're in? It's the pursuit of pleasure, regardless of the cost. Oftentimes without even thought of the cost. Narcissistic hedonism is one of the legs that supports the current thinking in the United States. The other support, if you please, is biological and behavioral determinism. Now, in actual theory, these two ideas are opposed to one another. But in practice, they work synergistically to excuse our behavior. Let me explain this. Biologic determinism says, 
your genes program you to be a certain way. Who you are today and what you do is governed by your genetic structure. And there's very little that you can do about it. <clears throat> In fact, remember that movie I recommended to you a couple of weeks ago? What, what was the name of it? Um, Intelligence Not Allowed? What was the name of it? Is that, was that it? Expelled, intelli- no, no Intelligence Allowed or something. Um, in that movie, there's an interesting interview with a world-renowned evolutionist. And here's what he says repeatedly in his interview. There is no free will. There is no free will. And and you say to yourself, what's that got to do with evolution? Unless you understand biological determinism. What he's saying is, you have no freedom of choice. You are a bag of chemicals wrapped in your skin and all you do is react to to stimuli based on genetic structure. You have no free will. You are a biologic animal reacting based on your programming. And that's all life is. And then when it's done, you're done. And that's all there is to it. You merely react based on the biological programming that has gone on inside of you. And so biologic determinism is the concept that that genetic structure and evolution basically control the development of of the individual. Behaviorism, on the other hand, says, as a philosophy of development... It's not your genes, it's your environment. It's how you were raised. It's where you were raised. It's the things surrounding your upbringing. If, if you had alcoholic parents, you are more likely to become an alcoholic. If you were raised in the ghetto, you are more likely um, to drop out of school and join a gang and follow that life course. If, if you have another kind of environment, that's the, the direction you're most likely to go. Your environment, your upbringing, your climate and surroundings determines how you make choices. And so people who believe in behaviorism, in that Pavlovian cause and effect relationship that we can uh, change the stimuli and eventually uh, alter the person, people who believe in behaviorism feel like if we could just solve poverty, we would eliminate crime. If we could throw enough government money at the ghetto, we could make everybody good. Because we need to change their economic condition, and then they will be better. And if we can ultimately um, cure a whole generation of alcoholics and drug addicts, then they will eventually have children that will not have these problems. All we have to do is, is solve these societal ills and change the environment, and people will get better. Because underlying behaviorism 
is the fundamental belief that people are inherently good. And if they just have the right environment, they will do the right thing. Well, when you put biological determinism and behaviorism together, they seem to be opposing, and they are at the fundamental level, they are opposing, but our society very neatly packages them as a whole, and it comes out looking like this. I am not responsible for my behavior because my genes and my environment have made me what I am. And I can't help it. And how can you say something is sin if science has proved it's genetic? Think about that. Now, I looked this up and did some internet research, not because I needed to do this, but I just wanted to refresh my mind so I could tell you that I had recently done it. And so I've done it in the last two days. I've done some internet research. And my search equation went like this, genetic link to, and then I typed in a word, genetic link to homosexuality, genetic link to alcoholism. Genetic link to bipolar disorder. Genetic link to drug addiction. And I just began to put these terms in. And did you know that for every one I entered, I came up with a variety of articles by reputable people and reputable publications that attribute and cite scientific studies that link homosexuality... Alcoholism, substance abuse, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, you name it, it links it to genetic problems. In fact, they are demonstrating that there are genes in most of these areas that have a relationship to the, to the problem. There was an interesting study done of alcoholics. As they begin to study family histories, there is a gene related to the way the body processes alcohol. And what they have discovered is that certain family groupings that have this gene in common, first of all, show a higher tolerance for alcohol metabolism. In other words, um, two drinks might make this one person kind of tipsy and weird, but this other person can have eight or ten and, and not have any discernible manifestation that they, they're, you know, got eight drinks on board. And their body has a desire for alcohol that is different from people who don't care one way or the other. And they have linked that to a gene. So, alcoholism has a genetic connection. There's an interesting study going on with fruit flies about homosexuality where scientists have actually produced gay fruit flies. I'm not trying to be funny. It just happens to be reality. And uh, once they have genetically 
uh, manipulated the uh, the generations. Fruit flies are easy to work with because they, they have whole generations every couple of weeks. So you don't have to live to be 100 years old to observe generational changes. You can take a few months' worth and make a difference. So so you can work with fruit flies pretty easily. And they, they have genetically... Um, there's an end point to this logically, but you, they've genetically mated fruit flies to produce homosexuals. And then when they put, do you want to know this? <laughs> then when they put them in, in, in the culture jars, gallon culture jars, the ones that have been uh, worked with genetically, the, the males all hang together. In fact, they form chains and, and they ignore the females who go to either end of the jar. And they've actually genetically designed homosexual fruit flies. Proving that there is a linkage genetically with homosexuality. There's a linkage genetically with bipolar disorder. And I'm not putting bipolar disorder in the same category with alcoholism. I'm just citing common problems that exist in our culture that we have found genetic linkage to. And so the question arises very naturally among us, why would we call something a sin that a person can't help because it's their gene? Why would we call that sin? Why would we look down on that? Why would we view it as a problem? What does the Bible have to say about it? And let me give you a general principle this morning that, that you can use in the application of all of these things. God could have included another book in the Bible if he had wanted to. It would have been the 67th book. And it would have been titled, not Atomic Theory, but Atomic Truth. And he could have given us a whole book of the Bible on the nature and behavior of the atom. From the perspective of the author and inventor. Okay, but he didn't do that. What he did was, in a very simple sentence, he said, All things are held together by the word of his power. Now, God knows the structure and properties and nature of the atom. He invented the atom. He made it. He called into existence out of nothing that which is. He could have revealed to us all the details. But he chose not to. He simply chose to say, everything is held together by the word of his power. When the Bible is silent on a subject, it doesn't mean God doesn't know the answer. It just means that he has chosen rather instead to give us enough information to trust him and pointed us to a solution. And here's the thing that we need to recognize when the Bible is in conflict with our cultural perspective. We are broken. We are fallen. Humanity has been wrecked by sin. And it's been wrecked not just in moral behavior. Our bodies are wrecked. 
You know, you go back in the Bible and you plot the, 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 the life longevity curves of human life from Genesis on and from Genesis until the time of Abraham, people, or until the time of the flood, people lived hundreds of years. And then you, interestingly enough, when it comes to the flood, there's a steep decline in the longevity of human life that eventually levels out at a median age of around 70 years. And that's not an accident. Something happened in the flood that altered the environment and shortened the lifespan. And the Bible doesn't explain all that to us, but we know that we now age and die faster than back then. And the more we study the whole science of aging, we realize that things are failing in our bodies. And listen, friends, (coughs) genes go bad. The genetic code is affected by the sin nature. Everything is broken. That's part of the the message of the gospel that addresses human ill. It says we're damaged goods. And when some scientist comes up and says, alcoholism is genetic, my response to that is, so what? It doesn't surprise me if it is. It doesn't surprise me if people who grow up in homes of alcoholics are four times more likely to be alcoholics than people who don't. That doesn't surprise me. They've been around alcohol all their lives. They've been around excessive drinkers all their lives. It's a lifestyle that they've been a part of. doesn't surprise me, but it does not excuse it. And being genetically predisposed to being sexually attracted to the same sex does not make the practice of homosexuality legitimate. It just means that's your inclination. Some people are inclined to eat too much. Some people are inclined to drink too much. Some people are inclined to gamble and fritter away their money. I love what my brother says about the the lottery. He says in Florida, I haven't heard this up here, but he says in Florida, they have a saying that the lottery is a tax on stupidity. Which makes a lot of sense. It's a tax on stupidity. But some people get addicted to gambling and they can't stop. Some people get addicted to pornography and they can't seem to pry themselves away from it. Did you know that there is there are chemical changes that occur in your body with addictions? And once those chemical changes are set up, there are cravings that develop. And they've identified it with sexaholics and, and uh, pornography addicts and gamblers and foodaholics and alcoholics and substance abusers and even criminals who go out to commit a crime premeditated. 
and thrill-seekers. Because going out to commit a crime premeditated is a little like trying to jump a motorcycle across the Grand Canyon. They have a lot in common. And a part of that drive becomes a chemical reaction to the anticipation, the yearning, the euphoric release. There's actually a release of endorphins. The euphoric release of the moment of excitement and then the letdown and the cycle begins again. And being able to explain that biologically and psychologically doesn't justify it. It just analyzes it. It doesn't make it legitimate. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that He has come to heal us. And part of the message of the gospel is, Jesus will, through His shed blood on the cross of Calvary, forgive your sin and give you a clean slate with God. Isn't that wonderful news? You know, here's a whole list of my sins on this side of the page, and Jesus Christ covers with His blood, and I look like this before God. I have a clean, fresh start. Isn't that wonderful? But that's only part of the Gospel. Because the other part of the Gospel is, He wants to come into my life and transform me so that there is new power in my life to keep this page clean. Now, God God understands me, okay? So, He's not sitting up there saying, all right, now I've saved you. Clean up your act. Next time you get a mark on that sheet, I'm booting you out. But what He says is, I understand your problem. You're broken. I'm not only going to forgive you, but I'm going to indwell you. I'm going to empower you. And if you will yield to me, I will deliver you from yourself. I will free you. I will release you from your addictions. I will liberate you from your cravings. I will give you self-control as a fruit of the Spirit where you have none. And don't kid yourself. Some people look like they got their act together and and they've got everything lined up and and they live their life so disciplined. That doesn't mean they have self-control as as a trait. That just means they've pulled it together in areas where society values it. And those same people may be very broken in other realms and very dysfunctional. And Jesus has come to give you power over your desires. Isn't that good news? You don't have to be compelled by pornography. You don't have to be compelled by homosexual tendencies and driven into the practice of homosexuality. Maybe there's a genetic inclination in that direction. We're mostly older here. Can I talk to you frankly? 
Okay, God set us up with a nervous structure. I've done I've done a, a lot of study of the nervous structure of the bio, of the body and sensory systems, and I can tell you more than you ever wanted to know about. Well, maybe not. Maybe maybe you want to know it all, but I can tell you more than you ever hope to imagine about the sensory sexual mechanism involved in the sexual response cycle. And, and here's a fact. You can stimulate nerves and get a response in a lot of different ways. In a lot of different ways. And, and when the response comes, it has the same emotional and psychological effect. But think for a moment about how we're made. And any person with half a brain, I'm not trying to be facetious, I'm just trying to be brutally honest. Anybody with half a brain knows that gay and lesbian sex is bizarre. It's not intended to work that way. All you got to do is look at the anatomy and physiology and say... This is a mismatch of intended function. This is not the way it was meant to be. And then you look at the disease processes and all of the bad consequences, not to mention the emotional and the psychological and the, the cultural and societal consequences. Dare we speak of AIDS? And it's like, good grief. What are we thinking? And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. Doesn't it? Doesn't, don't you recognize that even nature states this is wrong? Romans chapter 1. Can't you see, Paul says? And, and I want you to know this morning... Maybe people are born with genetic failure that predisposes them to be sexually attracted to the same sex. Maybe. And maybe it has a lot to do with their psychosexual development as a child in their home environment also. And then you put them in today's culture that says this is a legitimate alternative lifestyle. And you put them in a high school system that when they get into their sex education classes, they are told outright, you can choose anything you want at your life. And this is not abnormal. And all the taboos are released. And what is going to happen to people who are already kind of heading in that direction? They, somebody just gives them a little bit of a thrust and they move down that path. You may have a gene that predisposes you to the abuse of alcohol. You may be able to hold your liquor well. You may like it, but it doesn't change the way and the fact that your liver still has to metabolize it. And if you throw at it four or five or six drinks a day, 
your liver is eventually going to fail because you can't handle it. You're going to kill yourself if you don't kill yourself some other way first. And it doesn't make any difference that you're genetically inclined in that direction. It's still wrong. It's still wrong. And if you never engage in a homosexual relationship, and you never engage in the consumption of alcohol if you're at risk. I'm not trying to tell you that drinking is sin this morning. I'm trying to tell you that drunkenness and alcoholism is. But you will never be an alcoholic if you don't drink. There are certain realities that God the Holy Spirit can enable you to abstain from that will bring a deeper, richer spiritual quality to your life. You will never gamble away the family paycheck buying lottery tickets if you never buy a lottery ticket. You will never have to have that euphoria of spending $5,000 in the course of a year and, and you jump up and down with glee because you won a $100 lottery ticket. You know, and you go tell everybody, I won the lottery, and then what do you do with it? You go buy everybody a round of drinks, and you just spent your hundred bucks, and you spent forty-nine hundred to get it. That makes no sense. It doesn't make sense. It's not a sensible problem. It's an emotional problem. And God has the solution. That's the other part of the gospel. You don't have to go the way your genes are formatted, and the way your environment predisposes you, you can walk godly in Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the message and the truth of the Bible and the Scripture, the good news of the Scripture is, you can be changed and transformed by the power of God. So when the Bible is in conflict with culture, Don't be concerned that people are marshalling all of this evidence saying this is is appropriate and this is reasonable and this is right. And, And when the whole world tells you, you can have it your way. You can do it your way. You deserve a break today. You ought to please yourself. You need to satisfy yourself. You've earned this privilege of life. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. And I say to you, take up your cross daily, deny yourself, follow me. The one who stores up treasure in this earth is a fool. The the farmer who had the great crop and he said, tear down my barns and build bigger. I have a great harvest, soul, take thine ease, sit back, eat, drink and be merry. And Jesus said, you fool, today your soul is required of you. Your life is ended. It's over this afternoon. You're dead. Now what? You need to think about eternity. You need to set your affection and your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Friends, if the Bible teaches us anything, it teaches us that those who are followers of Jesus Christ are going to be counterculture. We are going to go against the stream. And all that the culture does to, to give us the platitudes and the appeasement that this is medical, this is genetic, this is biologic, this is environmental, don't worry about it, is just an excuse to indulge the flesh by ignorant people who remain ignorant because they are hard of heart toward God. And it doesn't disturb me when people say something is genetic or something is what. That doesn't bother me. It doesn't make any difference. The power of God can fix that. And I want to tell you, friends, that the power of God will give you the grace to live godly in Christ Jesus. The power of God will give you the grace to control your tongue. The power of God will give you the grace to walk in freedom. And the freedom wherewith Christ has set you free. When the Bible is in conflict with the culture, the culture is out of step with reality. And the message of the gospel is Jesus can change that. Jesus can fix what's broken. He can heal you. And if there's one thing he's about in this time of our lives on this planet, it's about making us look like him more and more every day. And friends, if, if there's anything, I, I talked to somebody yesterday. I, I just want to tell you this. I thought they were going to be here today and they're not. But I talked to somebody yesterday who quit attending our church because, um, in his case, he felt very, very severely judged. And he kind of gave up. And then he decided yesterday maybe he would come back. And I had a good conversation, but it was very enlightening. And in the course of the conversation, though, I, I came to the realization of something. That last verse in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Friends, if anything we should learn is, it's we're all broken. We're all under construction. God's doing a major repair work on us, making us over to look like Jesus. And i got no room to point my finger at your problem. We're brothers and sisters walking a path together and we need to lean on each other and point out the pitfalls and the potholes and the dangers as comrades. And when a brother or a sister stumbles or falls, we need to be willing to get down and help them up again without condemnation because it's, it's a rough road. But we answer to Jesus alone, not to each other. And if anything that we should learn from the human condition, it's that we are badly broken people. And Jesus Christ is transforming us day by day into his image. 
and our ministry to one another is to encourage each other along that path. To pray for one another along that path. To love each other along that path. And what God is working on in my life today, He may be working on something different in yours. You may already have conquered what I'm struggling with. I may have already conquered what you're struggling with. You can pray for me. I can pray for you. But we need to have a great deal of sensitivity to one another and tolerance. I've told you this morning that Jesus Christ can deliver you, and he can. But I will also tell you, it doesn't happen in everybody's life like that. Sometimes people don't go from being in trouble this moment to being spotless and whole the next. Sometimes it's a process. And God's at work. And it takes time. But He does His work. I am confident that He that has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can count on that. And Paul says in Romans 14, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will because God is able to make him stand. My message to you this morning is embrace Jesus Christ with all of your heart. Love Him with all of your soul and mind and strength. Pursue Him with all of your being. Let Him worry about your problems. You just love Him with everything you've got. And He will deliver you. And in due season give you victory. And it doesn't matter how you were raised or what genes you inherited, Jesus Christ will make you over into His image in due time. And we need to love each other and be patient with one another in that process and receive one another to encouragement of love and good deeds, knowing that God is the one who's in charge of our sanctification. Praise His name for that. Praise His name. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your love. Thank You for the message of the Gospel. Thank You that we can be free from the chains that bind us and walk in liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.